Good morning. My name is Joe Valenti. I'm one of the pastors here. I work with our um, students and with the missions department. We are, in, we are in week two of a series called In the Ring, where we're looking at marriage and how is it that we can begin to fight uh, alongside of our spouse or for our spouse and instead of with our spouse. And last week, Pastor Chad talked to us about the importance of prayer. And this week, I have been tasked with talking to us about ways to guard your marriage. What are good ways to guard your marriage? So give me a few of them. What are, what are some of the ways, some of the good tactics or practices to guard your marriage? Praying, Praying together. That's a good one. That's the first one. Good. <laughs> Communication. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. What else? Forgiveness. Excellent. What else? Date your wife. Date your wife. What? Die to self. That's good. Buy some presents. <laughs> We're going to stop there. That's perfect. <laughs> Done. Yeah. You know, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of good things. You know, um, we, uh, like, I would, I, would add, I would add to that list the importance of intimacy in, in marriage, uh, developing realistic expectations of one another, you know. Um, but, he, as, you know, as I was thinking about this sermon and what needed to be taught, I was thinking about, okay, what is distinct to biblical marriage? What is, is it distinct about biblical marriage, Christians that are married to one another, that is different than other types of marriage, other types of love? Because anybody, Christian or not, right, can go on dates with their wife. Anybody can have good communication with their husband. Anybody, Christian or not, can have a healthy, intimate life. And so what is it about biblical marriage that is distinct so my task this morning is to try and drive us a little bit deeper into God's word than some of, like all these tactics are really good, but they're not the ultimate purpose for marriage. And here, so maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe uh, somebody invited you, you know, you're here because a friend said, hey, come to church or for whatever, you know, other reason you might be here. What I don't want you to leave this room this morning having heard is something that you could have heard on Oprah, you know, or something that you could have heard on like any book that you grabbed off the shelf at Walmart. I want you to hear Bible, right? Like what is, what does the Bible tell us about marriage? And if you're a Christian here this morning, my hope is that your view of marriage might be brought, if it is not perfectly biblical, if it's not in line with the Bible, that your view of marriage would be brought into line with the biblical view of, view of, uh, of marriage this morning so that your marriage would thrive in deeper and more significant ways. So um, if you would, I always prefer to pray right before we go to God's word. And so if you'd pray with me and then we'll dig in. Lord, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the opportunity, the humbling opportunity that it is to share from your word on this specific topic. I think of a conversation I had after the first service with Joe and Millie Anton, who have been married for almost 65 years, and how they should probably be up here teaching the sermon as opposed to me. But I believe that your Holy Spirit can work through me and has given me a word, and I believe that you will do the work of applying it to each and every life, each and every situation as you see fit. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? Be our teacher. Um, do all that you desire to do in us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. 
I have three steps this morning, three ways to guard your marriage that are distinctly biblical. Three ways to guard your marriage in a biblical way. Here's the first one. Recognize the reason for your marriage. Recognize the reason for your marriage. There are a lot of reasons that people get married. People get married because they're in love or maybe they're infatuated. People get married because it's financially beneficial sometimes. People get married because there's pressure, right, from friends or from family. Uh, People get married because they think, oh, man, he's going to be a great dad or she's going to be a great mom. People get married for all sorts of reasons. But none of those things, even good, like companionship can be a reason for marriage, Um, attraction, all of these things are fine, but none of them are the biblical reason for marriage. There is one ultimate reason that surpasses all other reasons that your marriage, if you are a Christian, exists. It exists to do this to show the world what God's love is like. If you're a Christian in the room, that is the ultimate primary purpose for your marriage. All of those other things are secondary. Now, I don't just expect you to believe me. So let's look at the Bible. I'm gonna jump around a little bit this morning. So if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. And you may know this. It's a very famous passage. It's one of the longest sections, if not the longest, in the Bible on the subject of marriage. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, here's what Paul says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I want you to have this sort of filter on. As we go through this passage, look for those types of things. How is this an illustration or a picture of Christ's love for the church? Okay, look, look for those points. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, wives, or in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So this whole section there is comparison, the way that the wife responds to the husband and the way that the husband responds to the wife is meant to model, to illustrate, to display the love of Christ, the love relationship between Christ and the church or Christians. This is big C church, the Christians at large. That's what it's meant to do. That's what marriage is. This mystery is a reference to Christ's love for the church. Now, 
I'm going to give you another passage that proves the point that your ultimate purpose of marriage is to show the world what God's love is like. Turn with me to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. It says, the same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. So these guys, the Sadducees, they were like a religious political organization, group of guys, like elites. And part of their belief system was that they believed that the, um, that the body did not resurrect. There was no like coming, coming back um, and, and, and living bodily in heaven forever. And so um, they try to kind of trick Jesus. Same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So he's re- these guys are referring to Old Testament uh, law for the Israelites. And that's, that's what the guidelines were, that if your brother died, you would marry his wife in order to continue the family line, care for his family and so on. So they ask him, There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the women died. The woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So you see kind of the question. This woman has been married to seven men, and she's been married according to, like, all of them have died, and she's remarried, so it's been okay. And now they're saying, like, okay, she's been married to seven guys. Who will be her husband in heaven? Everybody's laughing. Figure that one out. Jesus says, you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So he's not talking about like, you know, will we have wings or a halo or something? We will be like angels in that we will not be married. And if you're anything like me, that saddens me just a smidge. Like I really like my wife, you know? I love her too, both. You know, I think it's good to say that. Like I love her, but I like her, you know? We, 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 we love a lot of people we don't like, but I, I like her. And that she won't, you know, I was thinking about my grandparents, you know, 50 plus years of marriage, and they won't be married in heaven. There won't be marriage in heaven. Got, now, heaven will be perfection, right? So God is not, we won't be lacking. We won't be lacking because we are not married. So what, what is the deal? Like, what is going on? Why is there not marriage in heaven? There will not be marriage in heaven because marriage's purpose will have ceased. Marriage's ultimate purpose will have ceased. If marriage is about something else, then it has to happen in heaven. But if marriage is mainly about showing the world what God's love is like, then the purpose will have vanished into the reality. Because when Christ comes again for his church at the rapture, and we are, are taken to heaven for eternity, there's no longer any need to show the world what God's love is like because the love of Christ will have been perfectly realized for those who've put their faith in him. And so this text, I think, perhaps is the most clear to remind us there won't be marriage in heaven. Why? Well, because the purpose of marriage is no longer needed. It is a model is a picture, an illustration of Christ's love for the church. That is what your marriage biblically is meant to do. 
Ultimately, that's the aim of marriage. So here's my question for you if you're married this morning. What is your marriage most known for? Maybe ask that question to your spouse. Like, or ask it to a friend. Hey, when you think of our marriage, what do you think of? Maybe your marriage is known for like, hey, they're really well off. Maybe you're known for like, they just have such a cute little life. <laughs> you know, those people. And you're like, there's nothing wrong with these people. It's like, all your kids are well behaved. Like, I want to make them misbehave just because, you know. Or, or maybe you're that couple, like I love these couples, who's like, it's clear that still after like 50 years of marriage, you still have the hots for each other. Like, I love that. I love that. Like, you know, like they're 70 and they're still touchy-feely. Hey, right on. Um, or maybe, maybe your marriage is defined by you're, you're, the, or you're the family just has a billion things going and you're always running in a hundred directions. But would anybody say... If you were to ask your closest friends, hey, what is, what, do you, what is most known? What is my marriage known for? Would anybody say the selfless, sacrificial love that you show for your spouse day in and day out is unlike anything I have ever seen? Would they say that about your marriage? The ultimate purpose of our marriages, of biblical marriages, is to show the world what God's love is like. So we have to recognize the reason for our marriage. Secondly, we have to root ourselves in the love of God. So point number one, recognize the reason for your marriage. Number two, root yourself in the love of God. See, if we're going to show the world what God's love is like, we have to know what God's love is like. Does that make sense? If we're going to show the world what God's love is like, we have to know it and experience it. It's not just theory. We have to know it individually. I'm not even talking about like your marriage. I'm talking about you personally, individually. You have to know what God's love is like if you're going to display it to the world. So turn with me to Colossians and we'll spend the rest of the time there. I won't make you flip around anymore. We'll be in Colossians 2 and 3. So flip to Colossians 2 and we're going to show you what God's love is like. Colossians 2, starting in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So if you're a Christian here, that describes your conversion experience. If you're not a Christian, this is what we call in the simplest form, the gospel or the good news. What's, so what's the process? What's the story? Well, first, we're dead in our trespasses or the uncircumcision of our flesh. Those are word pictures to describe the separation from God that is caused because of our sin. Any sin that we do causes separation from God and the just and right penalty for our sin is death. That's what we deserve. But then this text goes on to say, but God made you alive together with him. So here we are, sinning, separation from God, death, 
Now, God makes us alive. He restores, he restores the relationship. How does he do that? Well, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So all of the sins that separate us from God are forgiven. How does he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Now, the word here, the, the, the description is um, like a literal chart of accounts that stands against us. So you and I, uh, as we live our lives, are amassing a chart of accounts of our sins, and they're held against us. The legal demands of those sins against us require punishment, namely death. And this says that God cancels them. He forgives us our sin by canceling the record of debt and its legal demands against us. How does he do that? Verse 14, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So did he take our record of debt and like, take a ream of paper and nail it to a cross? No. What was nailed to the cross? Nails, hands were nailed to the cross, right? And feet were nailed to the cross. Not mine, hallelujah. Not yours, hallelujah. It's what we deserve. That's what we deserve, We deserve the just penalty for our sin. But this text says that it was wiped away. The debt was canceled by nailing the Son of God to the cross. That's what the love of God looks like. That's what the love of God looks like. It should have been you and it should have been me. One of my favorite songs is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. One of the verses says, Behold the man upon the cross, his sin upon his shoulders. Is that what it says? Mm -mm. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice calling out among the scoffers. Can you imagine putting yourself in that position, being one of the scoffers at the cross and crucify him? That's the place where we live in our sin. That's who we are. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what God's love is like. God's love looks like the perfect and holy son of God hanging, mutilated, dead on a cross because of your sin and because of my sin. The love of God keeps commitments 
when the other party doesn't deserve it. The love of God keeps commitments even at great cost to their own comfort. The love of God keeps commitments even when the other party turns their back on the relationship. The love of God keeps commitments to the death. And this is what our marriages are meant to reflect. Our marriages are meant, are ultimately meant to reflect that kind of love. The kind of love that says, I will keep my commitment no matter what at great cost and uncomfort and unhappiness to myself. That is what the gospel says and that is what our marriages are to reflect and yet most of us don't like the way that that sounds. We think marriage is about making us happy or about making us comfortable or about being in love or about bearing children, or about having financial stability. And none of those things are wrong by themselves, but they are not ultimate. Displaying the covenant-keeping to the death type of love is the aim for our marriages. Now, how are we going to do that? Because <laughs> let me tell you what. When Linda Valeni gets on my nerves... That's not my gut reaction. My gut reaction is if she has a debt against me, she does something wrong to me, she's in debt to me, I want to make her pay. With a word, with an action, with something snarky. Or sometimes, this is one of my favorite moves, I'm just gonna keep that in my back pocket. And we're going to pull that card out a little bit later. Remember that one time that you dot, dot, dot? It's my get out of jail free card. <laughs> so how do we do that? Like that kind of love, that kind of selfless love that Christ displays on the cross, how are we going to do that? We're going to root ourselves to the vine. We're going to root ourselves to the vine because we can't produce that kind of love on our own. See, here, here's the thing. You want to you you save your marriage that's headed down a bad road? You want to sustain your marriage that's at a good place right now? The answer is not to find some self-help book. The answer is to root yourself in God's word, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. To, to be humbled by the cross of Christ to the point where you would say to your spouse, how can I not extend this type of love to you because it has been extended so lavishly to me? You want to display or show the world what God's love is like? You have to know it. Only then can it come back out of you. That's, that's why in John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing in parentheses, including marriage. You can't do anything right apart from being rooted, attached to Christ. Then the Holy Spirit works things in you that are not normal to your flesh. Then the Holy Spirit works things in you and you're able to respond to your spouse in ways that you might not normally respond. Then when you respond to your spouse that way, the world looks in and goes, that love is different. 
the aim of our marriages is to show the world what God's love looks like. And we can only do that if we know it, if we understand it, if we're rooted in it, if we live it daily. Recognize the reason for your marriage, number one. Two, root yourself in the love of God. And three, reflect that love to your spouse. Doesn't this seem so easy? I mean, really, like when you look at the points, it's, it's really straightforward. Recognize the purpose of your marriage. It's to show the world what God's love is like. Okay, understand that love. Okay, then love like that. Okay. But man, when you get into the day-to-day, it's hard to love like that. That's why we must stay rooted in Christ. That's why we must have our aim set on something bigger than our own selves and our own happiness. Reflect that love to your spouse. That's point three. Slide down the page with me, or you have to flip pages to Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Like that could be the end of the sermon. Just go home and do that, right? Put on then compassionate hearts. Like if you just did that, if you rooted yourself in Christ and he worked in you, compassion, mercy, your marriage would be different, right? Mine would be compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's been noted that these things kind of go in pairs. We have like compassion or mercy. That's another way to um, interpret the word here. Mercy in our hearts, compassion in our hearts works out in kindness. Kindness towards our spouse or humility. You want to transform your marriage? Grow in humility get low. Don't think your ideas are always the right ones. Don't think that your way is the best. You want to ruin your marriage? Be prideful and angry about it all the time. Humility and meekness. Meekness is the same word here as gentleness. The the exact same Greek word in the fruit of the spirit in Galatians is here. Gentleness, meekness, same word. Patience. Anybody an expert in patience? Patience. And what comes out of patience? Patience works forgiveness and forbearance. Now, you might be thinking, time out. These things, I know people that are this way that are not Christians. I thought you said, Valeni that we were talking about biblical marriage. I know people that are kind. I know people that are gentle. I know people that forgive their spouse. You may, but not in a biblical way. Here's what's distinctly biblical about these things. And I think this wraps kind of the whole picture together. Nobody puts a ring on a finger and walks down an aisle with the aim of having a miserable marriage, 
okay? Nobody is like, hey, pastor, could we wrap this up so we can get to the arguing? That'd be like, let's just, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to just hate this person the rest of my life. Nobody does that, right? Christians, non-Christians, nobody does that. The aim is for things to be peaceful, to get along, to do life together. And so in an unbiblical, non-Christian marriage, here's how that works. It works by way of contract. You be nice to me, I'll be nice to you. You be kind to me, I'll be kind to you. You don't cheat on me, I won't cheat on you. You don't lie about money to me, I won't lie about money to you. Right? I mean, that's... And then if they do that, if they keep that contract, things work well. And you see plenty of these. Like, there are good, healthy, non-Christian, unbiblical marriages because that contract is still intact. Nobody's broken the contract. But Christian marriage, biblical marriage, is altogether different because it's not based on contract. It's based on a covenant. And here's what a covenant says. A covenant says, I will be kind to you even when you are not kind to me. Because Christ has been kind to me even when I didn't deserve it. And so I will be kind to you even when you don't deserve it. See, biblical marriage will say, I will forgive you and erase the record of wrongs against me. I'm not gonna hold it against you as a get out of jail free card someday. I'm not gonna wait a couple months and go, hey, no, remember this one time when you did that thing. Biblical Christian marriage can say, I will erase the record of debt that you have against me and I will not hold it against you because Jesus Christ has erased the record of debt that was held against me. I will now extend that out to you. This is the love of God. This is the covenant love of God that our marriages are meant to display. I was talking with Pastor Dale this week and he said, as he was, I was sharing with him where I was going in the sermon and he said, if you're gonna go that way, you've got to convince them that marriage is not what they think it is that marriage is not mainly about you being in love. How about that? Marriage is not mainly about you being in love. And yet we make decisions, or people make decisions about our feelings. Well, I don't feel this way anymore, so I'm out. Tell me this, folks. What if Jesus had made that kind of call? What if Jesus has said, the way that these people are acting towards me, I'm out. I don't feel loved. Let them fend for themselves. I'll tell you what would happen. You and I would be doomed. Marriage isn't about you being in love. Marriage isn't about you being happy. Those things can happen, and hallelujah when they do. When you have a, a clear view of biblical marriage, oftentimes those things can happen. You could be in love. And you can be happy, but it's not mainly what it's about. And this world, we've got confused. Like, well, if you're unhappy and you're not in love anymore, then just get out. It's not mainly about your kids. 
And it's not mainly about financial stability. It's not even about sticking in the marriage just because you feel like you're supposed to. Marriage is about showing the world what God's love is like. All those other things are really good. Communication is really good. Intimacy in your marriage is really good. Boundaries. All those things are really good. But here's my question. When the sex isn't as frequent as it used to be, and where you're not quite as enamored with them as you used to be, or when your expectations are not met, or when he hasn't fixed that thing in the house that you have asked him to fix 100 times, or when there's a hidden bank account that you find out about, or there's chatting online with somebody from the opposite sex, or when she gets so sick that your job description of your whole life changes to caregiver, or when somebody crosses the line with a coworker, when you've drifted so far apart that you don't even recognize that person, who are you going to look to? What are you going to do? That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where biblical marriage separates itself from everything else that we see in the world. That's where someone in a biblical marriage can say, I will see my commitment through at great cost to myself because I want the world around me to see what the love of God is like. It's not about my happiness. It's about his glory. It's what my marriage is about. John Piper says in his book, This Momentary Marriage, which I highly recommend, he says this, marriage is a momentary gift. It may last a lifetime or it may be snatched away on the honeymoon. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days or it may be covered with clouds. If we make secondary things primary, we will be embittered at the sorrows we must face. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. Do you see what he says there? All of the messes in our marriages, all of the sin we commit against each other are not detrimental if we see them as ways to succeed. They are ways in which we can respond with the love of Christ to show the world what his love is like. The beauty of covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. May the marriage-watching world be captivated 
by the covenant love of Christ. May our marriages be like that. That's my prayer, that we would catch a bigger vision of what marriage truly is, that we would root ourselves deeply in that love. We connect ourselves to the vine and then reflect that love out to our spouses. As we close, I want to give you a few action steps or make a few comments. The first is this. I've compiled a small list of resources that deal with marriage on this level. There are tons of marriage books that are great, but I I, I put together a small list of books and sermons that deal with marriage on this foundational theological level. And I highly encourage you to go and engage them. The book, This Momentary Marriage, has the ability to completely revolutionize your marriage because it is deeply biblical, which is why it has that ability. There are sermons, there are books, check them out. Um, You can go to cvcblog.org or if you follow CVC on Facebook, you can see it there. It's up right now. In addition, I want to make this caveat. Um, I didn't have time to go in this direction with this sermon because of time. But I want to be careful to communicate that if you are in an abusive relationship, what I'm not saying is just stick it out in that relationship Um, because that can be very dangerous to you. So don't hear me saying, hey, just keep forgiving and suck it up uh, and just stick in that relationship. There are scenarios, abuse being one of them, uh, substance abuse that causes significant problems in the home with the marriage or the children, Uh, perhaps severe problem gambling that have brought your family to financial ruin and other things that, Um, that may call for intervention from a church, from a counselor, from the police, and that may call for a time of separation for the purposes of counseling and restoration. And so if you are in a relationship like that, first, don't hear me saying, just suck it up and stick it out. I'm asking you to come and ask the church, or if necessary, to call the police or a local counselor and ask for help. Whether you're a male or a female, um, we can point you towards people that can help um, or if you, have those own, if you have those resources for yourself. I wanted to make that clear. Finally, for most of us in this room, we're in need of repentance. We're in need of repentance as it relates to the ways that we have handled our marriages in one way or another. You may be in a great marriage, you may be in a struggling marriage, or you may be somewhere in between. But we're all in need of repentance. And so as we close, the team is going to come and play a song. And I just want to give you an opportunity. Maybe you need to pray. You need to ask the Lord for forgiveness. Maybe you need to reach over and your spouse is beside you. You need to look into her eyes or into his eyes and say, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Maybe you need to go out and spend some extended time this afternoon talking to one another, forgiving one another, resetting the course of your marriage. But we're going to sing a song, 
And the song is probably not familiar to you. And I chose this song because it is so deeply rooted in the gospel truths that our marriages are meant to reflect. The bridge of the song says, when justice called for payment, mercy ran to die for me. That is what the love of God is like. When justice calls for payment, mercy ran to die for me. I want to encourage yourself. I want to encourage you just in these next few moments as we sing this song, as we worship, as we pray, as we repent, to root yourself in these gospel truths. And may they be the lifeblood of your marriage so that you can show the world what God's love is like.